Did you happen to listen to this past week's episode? I did not. So Jordan and I recorded together. Right. And talked about March Madness. I think it went great. Good. Um, but <laughs> something I think is funny is that I have gotten several comments that think that you and I recorded the intro because they think it's your laugh at the beginning. Oh. It's definitely Jordan's laugh. Oh. But they think, like, I just recorded an intro with you. And people emailed asking, like, why Emily was Chris McKen- in the intro? Emily <laughs> McKenna, like, came to me and she was like, so wait, was that Chris at the beginning and then Jordan the rest of the episode? No, I was not there at all. <laughs> no, no I, I did say, Chris is never here today. Because it's a quote from The Office. You're always here. But I clarified that it was a quote from The Office. Jordan laughed. That's what's important. Right. That's good. Welcome to episode 110 of From the Front Porch, a collection of conversations on books, small business, and life in the South. My name is Chris Jensen, and I'm going to talk about books today. And I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia. So we got some reviews, huh? We sure did. Yeah. Um, who knows what happens when you actually ask for things. Right. Um, <laughs> so in our last episode, which, as you know from our intro, I have not listened to, um, we asked for iTunes reviews to get us to 50, and we got... 58! 58! Um, so thank you guys so much. We are working on coordinating with the winner of our giveaway for iTunes reviews, and because you responded so great to that request... We're going to ask you to do it again. <laughs> and this time, because we're overachievers, we're going to up the goal. So instead of asking you to get us to, you know, 60 maybe, which would be... Super easy. Super easy, because we're like two off, guys. Right. I mean, come on. Um, we're going to ask you to get us to 75. And because we know everybody loves a good giveaway, mm-hmm. we will give an additional giveaway this week to one of the reviewers who gets us to 75. So it doesn't have to be our 75th. Right. Um, but we will do a giveaway from that pool of reviewers. We will count them, and the people between 59 and 75 will be eligible to win a giveaway. But also, don't don't stop at 75. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> um, so, like, ratings are great, but reviews are really what we need. Um, so please... Rate us with the stars, but also leave us just a short and sweet review. Yeah, it doesn't or, have to be long. Or long if you if you really want to write some things. And I do, I, we can read one of those because we got some really lovely ones. So I would love to share one of them with you. Uh, I don't know if you've read any of these. Uh, not lately. Um, but this is from um, DC Stacy. She said, great books, great fun. Uh, Love the variety in the podcasts. Always about books, but the format and participants vary, which keeps it fresh and interesting. Annie and Chris are not afraid to own their point of view on books, which is really refreshing. Oh, that's good. That is good, and I hope that's true. I I also hope that's true. Sometimes (laughs) I feel very wishy-washy, but I... other people never describe me that way, so... So you're safe. So I'm safe. Well, thank you, uh, DC Stacy, and let's try to get to 75 this week. Let's get to 75, and then we're going to give you some free stuff if we get there. So who doesn't like free stuff? Pretty fun. Pretty fun. In which case, let's go back to our new mutual favorite book, Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. Lincoln and the Bardo. You read this book raved about it more than I have seen you rave about a book. Yeah. Maybe ever. Yeah. In in your history at the bookshelf. Yeah. And 
you also prefaced it with it's a weird format mm-hmm. and it take. I think you said what 50 pages I think about a 50 page learning curve yeah so I decided to listen to it because um Nick Offerman is one of the narrators and David also Sedaris. David Sedaris yeah. oh my gosh and Lena Dunham Susan right. Sarandon right. like the cast it's a stellar looks amazing. cast yeah and I'm still kind of new to the world of audiobooks but I thought okay I'll try this one and the audiobook is fantastic, especially if you're a little overwhelmed or maybe put off by, put off might be the wrong word, but maybe you're overwhelmed by the format. Um, because explain the format for people who haven't picked it up yet. Right. So it's many, 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 many different narrators. Some of these narrators are excerpts from like real history books about Abraham Lincoln. Some of the narrators are ghosts living in the cemetery where Lincoln's son, Willie, was buried. But it's not set up like, and then uh, he said, and then she said. Right. It will give you a full like paragraph of description or dialogue or something and then attribute it to mm-hmm. that person afterward as if it's like an epitaph on a tombstone, almost. Yes. Um, or even an oral history. An oral history, or even like... If you've seen the, I think this might have been the inspiration here, the Ken Burns Civil War documentary. Okay. Where it will have words on the screen and a narration of somebody talking. And it's like a quote from somebody famous from the 19th century. And then at the end it will be like, hyphen, Abraham Lincoln, 1864. Okay. Um, That's I, exactly what it sounds like when it's being read. You should read an audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody would want that. Um, but, but maybe. Someday. So... The overarching themes in Lincoln and the Bardo are a lot about grief and loss. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, I think, in a reading recap. Yeah. And, and I, I think I mentioned offhand that I would love to do a class on literature of grief. You grief did. Literature, yeah. Grief literature. And so we got an email from listener Rachel Collins. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Rachel. And she emailed asking specifically for us to kind of expound on this idea of grief literature and what right. that looks like and what that means. And I think you and I are actually fairly qualified to talk about this. Yeah. Because we read a lot about grief. We read a lot of sad things. We do. Um, so I feel like we need to begin by by addressing that elephant in the room. Because I think there are a lot of readers, at least that I've seen on the internet, who don't... Their, their, their hesitation for starting a book like Lincoln and the Bardo is that they don't want to feel sad. Mm-hmm. People don't want to read sad books. To which I say, poppycock. <laughs> um Here's the thing. Life is sad. Uh-huh. And life can be hard. Mm-hmm. And reading about those things, I think, ultimately helps us handle them better. But again, I feel like I go back to this these studies all the time about um, readers being more empathetic people yeah. and reading deeply leading to deeper empathy. Mm-hmm. And I feel that way. Do I want to read sad books all of the time? Well, as a reader, I am attracted to those books. But I think it's important to read books about people who are grieving or who have lost something, both because I have lost things and also because I haven't lost things yet, but one day I will. Right. Um, I also think that reading shouldn't entirely be about escapism. mm -hmm. I think there's an aspect of it that's good and, and useful. Tolkien has a good essay on that about how... Um, fantasy literature and the way that he's writing it should be escapism because there are terrible things in the world and we can learn to address those better by reading about them in a like different context. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, like 
it's beautiful, but like there's a lot of sad stuff that happens in that book too. Right. Um, just because it has a happy ending doesn't mean there's not sadness. Well, no, I think about, I was talking to a customer about Harry Potter and yeah. at what age she's really trying to figure out because those books get dark quickly. Yeah. And she was saying like she's comfortable reading the first one right now, but she's scared they're going to get to six and seven too quickly. Right. And the reality is that most books contain tough subject matter. Mm-hmm. Like, because again, life contains tough subject right. matter. And I guess the aspect that I don't think about, because you and I are not parents, right? Um, we don't think about maybe exposing children to things, but I'll, I'll say I was exposed to Edgar Allan Poe as a very young child, got like kind of morbidly obsessed with some of those stories. And like, I think that only helped me yeah. in my intellectual growth, in my emotional growth of, of being able to understand and read about sad things made me better at understanding the world in some sense. Well, and children experience loss just like we do. So I think about, um, I mean, I want us to talk a little bit about some books in this kind of genre. Um, so I'll get to one of my favorites actually I read as a child. So I'll get to that later, but you know, I lost my grandfather who was very dear to me at Mm -hmm. 13. And I think I was not super prepared for that, but I had also read, I remember distinctly reading Little Women as like a third grader, which maybe was too young to be reading Little Women, but I read it and spoiler alert, though, honestly, (laughs) um, you don't know it by now, (laughs) um, Beth dies Mm -hmm. and I don't remember crying over that as much as I cried over Lori and Amy together, which shows (laughs) that I was eight. Um, but I remember being deeply sad that these girls lost their sister. And I I remember feeling things. And literature helps us feel things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm grateful for that. So Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite books that I've probably brought up before is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, written in the 20s, but it it imagines this future world in which essentially sadness has been eradicated, Mm -hmm. that sadness is not productive for society. And if we can keep everybody happy and only thinking about kind of vapid things that don't make them feel, then we can make society run more smoothly. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, within the novel, there are these savage reservations, which is where uh, the old ways, our ways, essentially, have been allowed to continue. Um, And there's things like the Bible and things like Shakespeare there that allow those people to live and appreciate art in a different way than the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And there's this final confrontation in the last few chapters where um, John the Savage, who becomes the protagonist of the back half of the book, um, has this conversation with Mustafa Mond, who is the world controller for Europe. And, And he asks John the Savage, like, well what do you think about this new world? And he's like, well, I, I kind of hate it. Mm. Nobody feels anything. Um, nothing means anything because there's no darkness to give the light meaning. That's right. Um, and Mustafa Man is like, well, yeah, I mean, that was pretty intentional. We don't need people distracted by all their intense emotions. We give them a chemical substitute for that. You get a shot once a month and then you don't need to experience Othello. Mm. And he says something like, it's all the passion of strangling Desdemona uh, with none of the risk. or It's, mm. it's something like that. Yeah. Um, the violent passion, passion, violent passion surrogate. And John is just like disgusted with this. He says like, 
No, it's the sad things in life that give life meaning. Yes. That allow us to understand and to appreciate the good things. And if we don't experience bad things ever, then what's the point? Right. What are you living for? Yeah. Um, what informs anything about the value of existence? Um, and like, maybe I read Camus too young. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um. <laughs> but I think reading books about these themes is helpful to us as humans. Absolutely. And... And not only that, but I think a lot of the books we're going to talk today about today are deeply beautiful. Absolutely. And it's important to be moved. Um, and, I, and I do want to qualify because I think there is there is a line between like experiencing a darkness for the sake of, of catharsis or for the sake of, of experiencing light. And then there's something that I might call torture porn, mm-hmm. which is just darkness for the sake of darkness. And I'm yeah. not necessarily advocating that, although right. I do think it has its place. Yeah. And I, I it's think just not a place that's useful for most people. Yeah. And I think there's too a designation between an author. And I think George Saunders falls into this category that kind of leads you to empathize deeply with yeah. Lincoln and, and with his suffering but then an author who might manipulate you into feeling something. Yeah. And so I think what we're going to talk today about today kind of falls into that first category. Yeah. Um, because I don't like being manipulated to feel things either. And even though that is kind of one of the main goals of literature yeah. on a on a broad sense that we don't like to think about sometimes. Yeah. No, that's true. Okay, so let's talk about some grief literature. Let's talk about some of our favorite grief literature. Um, and I think... The one that I, I think immediately sprang to both of our minds is A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. Yes. Um, so not necessarily literature, as we might think of it. It's not fiction. It's not fiction. Um, it was actually published under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. He didn't publish under his own name. It's very different it's, from... It's unlike any Lewis you've ever read. And it, my husband always scratches his head because it's my favorite. Mm. Um, it's my favorite as, of his nonfiction right. works. Um, it's raw. It is... Oh, it's you read it and it you feel everything he's feeling. Mm-hmm. So he's written it after the loss of his wife. And Lewis was only married very late in life, mm-hmm. um, in his fifties, I believe, um, to an American divorcee. Yeah. Uh, it was a it was a weird story. <laughs> um, and they were not married very long mm-hmm. um, before she died, and he and took he, it really I, hard. Yeah, he took it really hard, and he writes about that, yeah. if I recall, like how brief it was. But almost how that made it hurt even more. Yeah. Um, all the years they didn't get to have kind of thing. Right. Um, it, it gives an insight into him that I think is really important. Um, but I also think just in general, ooh, it just, you read it and you you also think about yourself and your own story. Um, at the time I read it, I was not married. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking, oh, like this is what happens when you devote time and parts of your life to another human. And then you run the risk. We all have to run the risk of losing everything. Yeah. And that's, isn't the risk what makes it worth something, yes. right? Yes. Um, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books, and I think my favorite C.S. Lewis book, and an, a good one to read that I don't think many people do. Yeah, I think it's one that people shy away from, and I, and I get that. Lewis, I wrote my master's on Lewis. I'm, for all intents and purposes, a Lewis scholar, but like Lewis... As a writer, especially in his nonfiction, he's very poised and controlled. Mm-hmm. He's presenting a very particular image. Yes. Um, of I don't want to I don't want to call it his best self because I think it's often not. Um, but we get something very different in a grief observed. We get a peak, not even a peak. We get 
we get the entirety of the man it's, behind the curtain. It's raw. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but yeah, his other nonfiction is much more put together, organized. A Grief Observed is like, read, well, and maybe you can, you can remind me of this or not, but it's like reading his diary. Yeah. It's just like reading his most personal it's, thoughts. It's fragmentary. It's, it seems out of order sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's just these, it's so refreshing for me to see like, Lewis, the, like, wartime champion of mere Christianity, like, struggle with the very idea of God. Mm-hmm. Um, to see a man just, like, brought low um, and made made all the more human for his readers for that. Mm-hmm. I think that's really beautiful. And I think it allows us to appreciate um, some of his poise and his control to see, like, what what he might be otherwise, yes. right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It gives you two sides to him, which yeah. I think is really important. Humanizing and beautiful. Yeah. So that's one that we kind of both immediately uh, were drawn towards. I'll tell you one that's similar that immediately came to my Please. mind uh, is A Year of Magical Thinking yeah. by Joan Didion. Um, I read this. I remember, don't you love... Um, books as like calendar points yeah like I feel like just like music kind of takes you back I have books that take me back to a specific place in time so I was living alone in Birmingham interning for Southern Progress which was a very put together mm. I, I think one thing we're going to find in the theme of these books is a raw vulnerability yeah um so I was working like in this very kind of perfect environment and I picked up I have no idea why year of magical thinking and it's basically after um, Joan loses her husband. Mm-hmm. And this magical thinking she's talking about is this idea that she imagines him still there. Right. And again, I was not married. Jordan and I had been dating, but like, it's very different from choosing to marry someone and like commit your life to them. And I remember reading it and thinking, this is what happens when you commit and give your life to someone. Like, it's like you're wrecked at the end because it can't last forever. Yeah. It does not last forever. The way she wrote does remind me of Lewis in that she too is very poised in her other writing. That's a great way to put it. Like she, she's just a genius. I feel like when it comes to a lot of her prose and, year of magical thinking is messy. Yeah. And in the best possible way, like not like the rantings of a crazy person, but like she is just, you can tell she is writing exactly what she's experiencing. And I even love just this, this idea of magical thinking, this, this idea that she has imagined her spouse still there. And, and I remember reading it shortly after my granddad passed away and my grandmother would still talk as if my grandfather were still in in the room and in the house and not in front of people, but she said she did that because that was what she had done her whole life was talk to him in these different rooms. And, and then when I read this book, I realized this is how many of us have to cope with loss is by pretending it hasn't happened. Yeah, and another one in that exact vein is a short story that I really love called The Fairy Handbag by Kelly Link. I don't remember the name of the collection that it's in. Um, It might be from The Fairy Handbag. Um, (laughs) I will figure that out and put it in the show notes. Um, That story, I always teach it in my short story class, but it's very difficult because depending on how you interpret a single detail, it's... Two entirely different stories. Okay. Um, 
it has to do with the death of this character's grandmother mm-hmm. at the end. Um, and it's told, like, past tense of, like, okay, let me show you how we got to right now. And it takes us through this girl, Genevieve, and her, this, her, she's very close to her grandmother, who is an immigrant, and her grandmother claims to be from this magical world that now only exists inside of her handbag. Mm. Um, and if you interpret that as being real, mm-hmm. as this being like this kind of actual magical element in this story, that's one way to read the story. Mm-hmm. If you interpret it as this kind of fiction that she's invented for herself to cope with the death of her grandmother afterward that oh well I still have the handbag I can still find her she isn't dead she's just retreated into this yes then you can read it a completely different way yeah um and I I love I love walking through this with my students um and it's not just about an unreliable narrator I think that's overdone I think people too often like to look at a narrator and like say like oh well the narrator's lying to us Mm -hmm. there's something wrong here and like well not always. Sometimes you can just take it as, as fact. Right. But this one, depending on how you read... It lets you yeah, kind of determine. And it completely changes how you take the text. That sounds genius. Um, it's beautiful. I love it. The fairy handbag. F-A-E-R-Y. Um, if you can find that, you can probably find a PDF on the internet, but I do recommend buying the book. Um, and I'll find that book for you. I know you and I both had a graphic memoir yes. on the list. So mine, we... we discussed I think recently it's called Last Things right. by Marissa Moss and it's coming out this summer so it's not I think maybe in May so it's not out yet but it's about um, this woman whose husband has ALS and he's diagnosed and then quickly deteriorates and I really loved the book love seems like an odd word to use but I really loved the book because she wrote about the hard parts of disease and terminal illness that she felt like she didn't hear very much about. Like it turned her husband into somebody she didn't know and recognize. And she kept, I think reading and hearing that like terminal illness brings a family together or like, you know, these final moments you're closer than before ever before. And for her, that wasn't true at all. Mm, And isn't it so interesting that that's kind of exactly what we love about Lewis and Didion, that we get to see them as different people than they okay. usually present ourselves, but it's also present themselves, but it's also this kind of terrible thing that can tear families apart. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. So, so Last Things is a great graphic memoir, and then you've got one that I also love. Um, I've got a couple, one that I just thought of that I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we were talking about this, but it had to be edited out because of customers using our bathroom in the middle of the recording. Um, <laughs> Um, Rosalie Lightning um, is about these young parents, and I I believe it's by Tom Hart. Um, It's about these young parents who lost their their two-year-old daughter, Mm. Rosalie. And it was very sudden, and it's about, like, the joy of having her and the, like, utter despair Mm -hmm. of losing her. Um, Really beautiful story of parents trying to figure out their life after this horrible thing happens to them. But again, it's this really very human exploration of of the fact that there really are no rules. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody has to figure this out for themselves. There's not a guidebook. There's not a guidebook. Um, but the other one that we that we both love is Fun Home by yes. Alison Bechdel. Yes. Um, Whew, and that. like, not, not a spoiler, it happens in the first chapter, but her 
uh, second chapter, I guess, but her father dies. Yes. He's hit by a truck while he's crossing the street doing yard work. And what I love about this, and I always teach the chapter in the same, actually with Fairy Handbag, I pair them together, um, because her family more or less decides that he committed suicide because that at least gives his death meaning. Yes. That it wasn't this just totally random accident of like, well, he didn't, he was carrying branches and didn't see the truck coming. Yeah. Um, but if they say that like, well, he was always sad and he always had a lot on his plate and there was a lot to deal with in his life that was difficult. So we like to think that he jumped in front of the truck and like my students are always like shocked by this. Like, well, why is suicide better? That that would be better? more comforting. Because it's, it is at least meaningful. It's de- and it's at least definite. Like there aren't as many questions It was something that them. he wanted. Yeah. Um, that it was something that they could, they could at least deal with it if they knew that it was intentional or if it was just this meaningless accident that makes it so much worse, uh, which is just such an interesting formulation of that problem mm-hmm. that maybe we don't think about enough no I'm excited to be able to teach that again or some of her other work later um another kind of aspect of grief literature I think is not just the loss of someone but maybe the loss of yourself yeah so I think immediately of when breath becomes air which Jordan and I talk about at length on the March Madness episode because I honestly it was a fun conversation to have because I did not realize how deeply um how deeply he was that book made an impact on him. Mm-hmm. He said it's one of the most important books he's read in the past couple of years, which from Jordan is high praise. That's high praise, yeah. And for me, when reading it, both both the parts written by Paul Kalanithi himself as he struggles with this diagnosis and he knows it's the end, like this realization, this is the end of my life. And then the end of the book, which is his wife kind of wrapping things up and, and talking about him, it is hard to read. Like, I don't deny it. But I remember my mother telling me, I just don't think I can read that. It sounds right. so sad. And it is sad, but but I want to know those things. Right. Like, I I want to know at least as as much as possible what that feels like and what that looks like. and To prepare. Yes. In some sense, in some sense right. yeah. Um, so when Breath Becomes Air comes to mind, fictionally, um, Gilead, which... Yeah. I, did you read that? I have not read that. Um, that is one of... When I think about like the best literature of the past 10 or 20 years, mm-hmm. I think I'm always going to think about Station Eleven, which mm-hmm. we're so, you know, we're almost like, oh, we talk about that too much. Um, <laughs> but Gilead, I read years ago, I think I've told this anecdote on the podcast before, Jordan and I were newly married, we were watching like basketball on TV in a hotel room, we were out of town, and Jordan looks at me because I am sobbing, and I do not sob, like, I just don't, and he is, par- this is early in marriage, and he's like, what? Are you okay? What's happening? And I had just finished Gilead mm. and I said, it's just so beautiful. I've never read anything like it. Like, and it is one man, he is um, an aging pastor of a small town and he knows he is dying from heart disease or heart failure. And he's looking back on his life and his relationships with his son and his relationships with his family and with his parishioners. And it's a lot about faith and that, Again, kind of that C.S. Lewis thing of faith, but also what happens when we feel like God might not be here? Right. And what does that look like? Lincoln and the Bardo discusses that some too. And yeah, it those does. were the best, to me, those were the best parts of the book. Those were the parts that I felt the most deeply. Um, but I cannot stress enough. I w- Gilead is not one that may, might immediately come to mind as a book about grief, but it is. It's about him struggling with loss and with 
what have I done with my life? Mourning himself. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, so th- those are two I think we can't kind of leave out is this idea, yeah, of mourning ourselves. I think also there are some books that that I, I don't think people pay enough attention to the grief aspect, and maybe that's that's one of them, but Catcher in the Rye is one that catches a lot of flack for the teen narrator being annoying. And like, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> yes. But <laughs> like you're not supposed to agree with what Holden says. Like he is justifiably an idiot. Yes. Um, and that's the point of that book. Um, and reading that when I was 20 was very important to me because it made me understand that I too am an idiot uh, who tries too hard to like improve others, other people's lives without asking them if they want me to do that. <laughs> um, but one thing that I think people forget about that book is that it is informed deeply by grief. Yeah. His brother dies right before that book starts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes up several times, but if you read the story as, as, as a teen boy who is coping with the loss of his older brother, whom he has idolized, mm-hmm. then I think you can it begin makes, to cut him a little slack. Yeah, it all makes like, sense. He is, he's a little bit lost his mind because he doesn't know how to go about his life without the guide of his older brother anymore. Yeah. Um, Ugh, that's yeah. so important understanding that book and nobody ever talks about it. You're right. It. Nobody does. Nobody talks about that. Yeah. Um, so in my like imagined grief literature syllabus, Catching the Rye is like right in the middle. Good. Um, we need to talk about, we need to talk about Holden. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've got two more. Okay. One is extremely loud and incredibly close. Yeah. I always forget about this one and I feel like people do too because the movie was less than stellar. Right. And I think then we just assume, well, the book was was not very good. Or maybe maybe because we felt manipulated by the movie to feel things, maybe we feel like the book does that too. But my recollection of the book, which I read years ago, was that it was deeply meaningful and beautiful because it's about this child who is, you realize kind of, you realize early on, like, it's not a spoiler, but it does take a while for you to fully understand that he is grieving the loss of his father a year after the September 11th attacks. Mm. So his father died in the September 11th attacks, but he still thinks, maybe I can find, I've got this key that my dad left me. He must have led this journey for me to find him or find something yeah. interesting about him. And so this little boy, this nine-year-old, I think, kind of goes on this quest throughout New York City to discover more about his dad. And it, I mean, it's heartbreaking, um, but what a great book that I, I think we don't talk about anymore, maybe because we feel like, oh, September 11th happened so long ago, like, I don't need to read this, um, but if, forget September 11th, it's about a young boy who has lost his dad. I don't know, I thought we were supposed to never forget. Oh, you're right, that was lame. Anyway, this book is about a kid who has lost his way. Right. And you talk about Holden not having his kind of guiding, um, the figure of his older brother this kid has lost his dad yeah and what that means and what that looks like and the way he tries to cope is by trying to make sense of it and trying to feel like well, my dad must have left me this quest to go to and to attend and there to. has to be a larger cosmic purpose yes. for this which yes. i think is which grown-ups do too grown-ups absolutely do <laughs> yeah. that um and i think some of the best books that all almost all of these books that we've mentioned are about that yeah. of people trying to rationalize Meaningless death. Right. Because death just happens and it doesn't always have... It never has <laughs> a greater purpose. Not the meaning that we're looking for. Right. Um, but it's about these people 
having to deal with that and seeking to find a meaning for their lives that works. Mm-hmm. This is Kierkegaard. This is Camus. This is existentialism, <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe why I like all that this. That is probably why you like this. Mm. Okay, I've got one more, and then I'll let you kind of close out. But I want to mention Bridge to Terabithia mm-hmm. because I read that book as a child. It's a children's book. That is adult. That is heavy. It's got some weight to it's, it, huh? It's heavy. But I remember, I've mentioned this before. This is another Annie anecdote. But, like, that's the book that I took to my third grade teacher. Like, you need to read this to my class. And she wouldn't read it because it had the word hellhole in it. <laughs> so I went home and sharpied out the word hellhole and then brought it back and was like, will you read it now? And she was like, sure. <laughs> Which is pretty much Annie in a nutshell. But in all seriousness... um, that book made a profound impact on me to the point that then years later, the movie came out years later. That book was written in the 70s. Disney, Disney-fied it and right. made it a movie much later. But even while watching that Disney movie, I was at like a girl's retreat or something, and I'm the only person in the corner. Me and my cousin, who I made read the book, are in the corner sobbing because it's supposed to be this kind of fun, question mark, children's story about this boy and girl who don't have any other friends so right. they befriend each other and, and they, they create this, this magical world, world. Yeah. oh it's fantastic um, until it's not until it's really not and it's about something else entirely which is again to me genius writing it's great yeah um, and then I found out later that the author of that book wrote it after her son's um, best friend was struck by lightning and oh. died and again it's this trying to explain to someone trying to explain to your child why this would happen. Trying to find meaning out of the senseless loss of a fifth grade kid. And so she wrote about these friends who developed this magical world and then tragedy strikes and how the girl copes and what that looks like. And whew, it is, I'm so sad now (laughs) just talking about it. Just thinking about it. I know. I think our teacher read that to us, and it feels like we were too old for this, but I think it was sixth or seventh grade. Yeah, I think probably fifth grade is really when you should be reading that book. Me taking that to my third grade teacher is just yeah, is just yeah. me. <laughs> but I think fifth grade is probably right. Uh, and then very quickly, I think the opposite side of that coin, and this is one that I just thought of while you were talking, um, Interview with the Vampire mm-hmm. uh, by Anne Rice. Oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. It came out in 1975, but she wrote it to deal with the loss of her daughter, of her oh, young daughter. I had no idea. And so what she essentially did is she created a six-year-old immortal vampire child mm-hmm. to replace... The daughter that she lost. Gosh. Um, Which is psychologizing the writing a little bit more than I'm usually comfortable with. But I think in this case it holds up. Yeah. Um, Spoilers, Claudia doesn't doesn't make it Mm -hmm. by the end of the book. So I think that was maybe her her writing her way, and Rice writing her way through her own grief process. Her own grief, yeah. Um, Which, and if you read it that way, I think it's actually a very beautiful story. Don't bother reading the rest of the series, but the first one is really, really quite excellent. A uh, very, very good little book. Um, maybe let's not dwell on Freud's couch too long, but maybe the reason that we are both attracted to grief literature is it because we are kind of tightly controlled, um, good presentation of self people who like a justification for the fact that we do contain multitudes, being able to see other people act out of character. Yeah. <laughs> <Ooh>. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that hurts. <laughs> but, but 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 maybe true. I think, there's some tru- I think there's some truth to it, and I think my losses have been 
mostly safe losses, mm. loss of grandparent, which felt, I mean, hurt deeply. Yeah, that's the uh, hardest I've been hit ever. Very hurt very deeply, but I've not lost a spouse. Right. I have not lost a parent. I have not lost a sibling. I do have a horrible imagination that imagines yeah. those things. Oh, and dreams. And yeah, and know. I, I that is horrifying to me. And yet I know one day that will happen. Um, but I do, I think, like reading literature about those themes because I know loss happens, and I think, I think I like to know. Just like almost with any other book I read, I like to know how another person handles it yeah. and what that looks like. And and you and I talked about there might be some commonalities among these books, but also grief is deeply personal. Yeah. So each of these books, the memoirs and the fiction, like it's also different because no one grieves alike. And I think maybe that's why I like it as a it's not a genre, but as a as a trope mm-hmm. in literature or a theme or a theme. This idea that these people are going about similar processes, but they're never the same. Mm-hmm. It makes for it makes for great stories. It always makes for great stories. It sometimes makes for easy, convenient stories. There are people who abuse this. Sure, thing. there are books we didn't talk about that right. do this the wrong way. Right, but I think all of the books we mentioned today are probably pretty excellent. I hope so. I think so. Who I'm gonna need like to decompose. No, we, I have we to... need a minute. <laughs> no, we like... should record like a Happy Books episode. <laughs> I know this is awful. Um, okay, but. Chris, you're going to put this list on the show no- in the yes, show notes. Yes, absolutely. So if you are interested in tackling any of these tough titles or subjects, um, there's a list ready for you. Yeah, um, and you know, God forbid you need them to help you through something in your own life, but if you do, I think all of these books yeah, I think these could would be useful help. for that. But I also don't want to think about grief literature as just kind of like um, uh, a, a panacea to make you feel better by experiencing somebody else's hardship. That's not what it no. is. Um, and it's also not a space to just wallow in your own sadness either. No, it's a chance for some introspection for sure, mm-hmm. but... Growth and just explore the majesty of human experience. That's beautiful. <laughs> Multiplicity. Um, but please let us know. Um, and if there are other books that, that you recommend that you think kind of fit in this theme, let us know. If you have any other questions or comments about the podcast, please email them to me at inventory at bookshelfthomasville.com. You can find full episodes of From the Front Porch on iTunes or on our store website. That's www.bookshelfthomasville.com. And you should follow us on social media, too. Um, We're on Twitter and on Instagram at bookshelftville, and you can also find us on Facebook at The Bookshelf. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you guys next week.